0: First time I went to China, the only things you could, implements you could actually eat with were chopsticks. And I had never eaten with chopsticks before. And I remember starving really for the first maybe one or two days. And then after that, it was fine.
1: My guest today is Joanna Capon, art historian, industrial archaeologist, curator, writer, art consultant, cataloguer, and lecturer. Joanna was born in the UK, and in her pre-show notes to me, she told me her interest in Asia, specifically China, began when she received the book The Dragonfish by Pearl S. Buck for her eighth birthday. In 1974, Joanna travelled to China for the first time, and since then visited almost all of its provinces, mostly to visit museums and Buddhist sites. She is currently a committee member of the Museum of Chinese in Australia and has published the book A Guide to Museums in China, as well as numerous articles on European art history, Chinese art, industrial archaeology, and art as part of a healing environment. We talked about her memories of her first time in China, walking across the bridge that connected Hong Kong to Guangdong, her excitement. Where she flew over the Yangtze River and how she saw the country and people grow over the past 50 years. Welcome to Cloud Asia, where we ask our guests to take us on their journey to Asia capability. I'm Lucy Du, and here is Joanna Capon. Good morning, Joanna. Good morning, Lucy. Good morning. It's wonderful to have you on our show today, and I loved reading your note about how your first interest in China began. Can you tell us a little bit about your eighth birthday and the book that you received?
0: Yes, I was absolutely thrilled. I was given this book. I think probably up until that moment, I hadn't been really aware of China, and But it completely caught my imagination. It was about two young girls. One was Chinese, one was Australian, who were living in a village on a river in China. And they became friends because they had brothers that teased them. And I related to that because I had brothers who teased me, too and they went down to the river and found in the fishing nets this dragon fish there were wonderful illustrations not only of the fishing nets but of wonderful villages and it completely caught my imagination and i really wanted to go to china from that moment onwards
1: and the first time you visited china that was i recall you said in 1974 yeah what got you to go? What was the reason behind it? How did you get there during that time?
0: As I said, from the age of eight, I would have been determined to get to China, to go to China. And at that time, I'd begun to collect Chinese art from a great friend of mine called Giuseppe Eskenazi, who has a Chinese emporium gallery in London. I knew him very well. And through him, I had met Edmund Capon, who later became my husband. And we both worked at the Victorian and Albert Museum. I worked in the European section and he worked in the Far Eastern section and I have to say there was a huge divide between the two because we considered ourselves completely legitimate and we were a bit slightly suspicious of the Chinese part yeah. of the museum. One day when I had gone to visit Giuseppe's showroom He told me he was going to China with Edmund. And I said, oh, I must come too. And he said, well, ring him up. So I did. And I was absolutely charming and said he couldn't possibly go to China without me. And he said he'd have no difficulty whatsoever. And I was very upset by this. And I rang him throughout. It was the beginning of the summer. And I rang him throughout the summer saying, have you changed your mind? Can you take me? And he always said no. And then finally, one day he rang Mm -hmm. And he said, if you can say yes now, you can come because Giuseppe had an accident and he couldn't go. So that's how I got there. So I that's said, immediately. G- <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: yes. Yes, 100%. When you were on the flight or when you had landed, do you have any recollections of what you thought, how you felt, what you had seen that first
0: moment? What happened was in those days you flew to Hong Kong and then you caught the train and then you walked across this narrow bridge and over a little creek and underneath there was a boat with soldiers with guns in it and I just remember that wonderful moment of dragging my suitcase because naturally I'd taken far too many clothes, dragging my suitcase across that bridge and finally setting foot in China, mainland China. And that was a fantastic moment. It was also pouring with rain because there was a cyclone around. Absolutely. <laughs> and I do remember that. And then getting in the train and going to Shenyang and looking out of the window and seeing those, seeing the, the fishing nets and the housing that I'd actually seen as a child in that book. Wow. Just wonder, It was a wow moment. was fantastic that's Uh, incredible incredible. and I think the other moment was my father always used to listen to the six o'clock news in England and I used to listen to it often with him because he'd come back from work and I would sort of go and say hello to him and I remember him talking about there was quite a lot of talk about the Yangtze incident in which there was a, I have to say, my greatest interest was there was a cat on the ship, on the boat that had been captured. Okay. And I was much more concerned about the result of what would happen to the cat who was called Simon. But it's made the Yangtze very much part of my thoughts of China. And I remember we were flying to Shanghai from Guangzhou and on the flight, the pilot in perfect English said, wow. We are now flying over the Yangtze. And I thought, That's it. I'm definitely in China.
1: <laughs> and I think when you would have listened to those. Stories and the reports on the BBC, you would have been quite young, I'd imagine. Yeah, I was quite young. And to see firsthand as you're flying over the Yangtze must have been such a
0: Early incredible. It was,
1: yes. Well, why yes. don't we go into
0: your first nomination, which is food? What <laughs> have you picked for us today? I picked steamed crabs. I remember particularly. I've been travelling quite a lot. Very rapidly because I was doing research for my book and going to a lot of museums and I got to Shanghai and I was quite tired and I thought mm, just going to go and just sort of you know I'll have a bowl of rice or what noodles or whatever and yes. somebody a friend said no you can't do that you've got to come it's the crab season we've got to go and have crabs and so we went to the top of a of a hotel and I don't remember what its name was and we had the most delicious meal of steamed crabs and that was absolutely <laughs> Absolutely fantastic. I have to tell you, the first time I went to China, when I first yes. arrived, the only things you could implements so you could actually eat with were chopsticks. And I had never eaten with chopsticks before. Wow. And I remember starving, really, for the first maybe one or two days. And then after that, it was fine. <laughs> Imagine you learn how to use chopsticks very
1: quickly. Yeah, I did. It was that it was that or not. <laughs> and you know, talking about eating crabs, I am also a big crab eater. However, I always find it incredibly cumbersome and there's a word in Chinese called mafan which really encapsulates how yeah. difficult it is. Yeah. To eat crab, how do you find <laughs> eating
0: crab then yeah. and now? Do you still enjoy it? Do you enjoy it? I still the lo- love it, but I'm incredibly messy, and in the sort of crab. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, yeah. exactly. There's actually services.
1: I don't know how popular, but in Shanghai, especially during crab season, which you imagine yeah. is very popular, for often very pretty females to help Shell Crab bring out the crab meat for
0: you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure they're very popular. (laughs) For
1: Music, you have given me a very interesting nomination. Mm -hmm. Tell me what it is and why you've picked it today.
0: It's the East is Red, which obviously is very old indeed now. And the reason was that when I first went to China, it was the end of the Cultural Revolution. Wherever we went, we would hear this being played. It's in fact a very rousing song. There's a lot of action. There's a lot of drama in it. I mean, and at that time, it really summed up what China was, what was happening in China and what people thought about it. Mo. Yes. It was very popular. I still occasionally hum it to myself. <laughs>
1: catchy and this would it have is. been in 70s and 80s would you yes, say I mean, that was really, the time
0: really I think really by the 80s it had stopped I think really the 70s
1: yeah uh, I had a um, friend who if he's listening he'll know who he is yeah. in Beijing when we studied on exchange together and he yeah. would on occasion pull out this song <laughs> at karaoke yeah. which you can imagine yes, you okay. know shocked <laughs> impressed all sorts of reactions. I'd love to ask uh, with this song, you arrived in China for the first time in the mid seventies. I wasn't born until the late eighties. I didn't spend that much time in China because I was living in Australia. Mm -hmm. How have you seen
0: China change over those years? The change is incredible it's unbelievable if I'd been to- told when I first went to China what it, what China would be like today I wouldn't believe people I don't think any country in the world that I've visited has actually had has had changed so much it's a very restricted place when I was first there people were wearing Mao suits everybody's hair was kept very tidy and neat there was very little food for people and noticed only because the trouble was as foreigners, you were given more food so that you... Mm. Edmund had been in 72 and I remember him saying that there'd been no lights whatsoever in Shanghai. But there were very few lights and as a foreigner, you you were shown the best all the time but you were yes. aware of the fact that it was quite a difficult time. Mm. And then gradually as we've gone you know, I've been back and back and back. It's improved and improved and improved and changed. And I mean, now, I mean, it's, we're now advanced of everywhere else. I mean, it's, there's so much going on uh, on there and so much has happened. There were sort of things that when you went back, somebody would talk about. I think once was when people had fridges in their house, they would talk about that. And then remember there were roundabouts and flyovers. And I have driven on some, not very good roads during various periods. Now the roads are absolutely fantastic. The trains, which I've travelled a great deal on trains, I mean the very fast trains, are absolutely fantastic. It's completely changed. It's now one of the leading countries in the world. And I think that infrastructure
1: change, at least to people who don't spend a lot of in-country time, is yeah. the most marked difference that you can see for example having the highways that are built having tall buildings i remember yeah. when the pearl tower was yeah. first built in shanghai and i yeah. went yeah. with my grandparents yeah and thinking that was the yeah. most exciting tallest yeah. building yeah and now it gets dwarfed by yeah. everything else
0: i think that's absolutely right i remember going to shanghai once, when I was doing my research, I went to Shanghai by sea. When I'd first seen it, the Bund, those were the highest buildings. It is quite extraordinary. But I yeah. think also that people can dress exactly how they want, do exactly what they want. I think it has changed enormously.
1: For sure. It's bringing out, I think, the identity of individual Chinese people, people yes. living in different parts it, of China. It has. You talked earlier about travelling to China regularly, mostly to visit museums. You mentioned to me before we started the show that you went to about 75 museums in China, which is incredible, and ended up writing a book about a guide to museums in China. Can you tell us a little bit more about
0: that? That happened because originally my husband, Edmund Capon, had been asked to write a book on the t- museums in China. And because of that, he was the director of the Art Gallery of New South Wales. He didn't have the time. So he asked me if I would go and do the research for him. So that was in the 80s. And so off I went very happily and did the research for him. and. As soon as I got back, or fairly soon afterwards, Tiananmen happened, and the publisher no longer wanted to publish the book. And so I had all the material, but there was no point. There was nothing that could be done about it. In the 90s, a friend of ours who was also a Chinese expert asked me what had happened to the material. He knew that I'd been there, and I said, well, it was still hanging around. I'd still got it. And he said, well, if I put it together, he would try and find a publisher for me. Edmund didn't want to do it. He had too much to do. And that's what happened. But I realized that things had changed a great deal since I had worked in the 80s. And so I went back and traveled again around China. I spent three months traveling around. That was on your own? Yep, it's on my own. As I've told you, I'm afraid I don't speak Chinese. After about three months, you do speak some, but I could read some of the characters, which was important because I travel mainly on trains because... If you were a lone person, if you were on an aeroplane and that some sort of senior people wanted to travel on it, you were the one that got left behind. And so that had happened a couple of times. I decided that with trains, you normally got a seat, so that made it much easier. And you arrived on time, so you knew what you were doing, so you could plan your time. And so that's how I travelled. And when I got back, I published the book. And that's a
1: good segue into your TV show, (laughs) <laughs> nomination you talked about martial arts tv
0: series when did you watch this and why did you pick this as your nomination when I was doing my research I was moving very quickly so I w- would arrive somewhere I would go to the museum I would look through it talk to the people there I would spend an entire day there I would then go back go through all my notes write them up I would then just turn on the television and I just wanted to completely relax and it didn't really matter if I knew what people were saying or not but I used to really enjoy it was complete fantasy land and I loved it (laughs) I'm not sure how you found watching martial arts relaxing (laughs) Um, <laughs> well it's it's <laughs> I mean they're wonderfully sort of moving into another time <laughs> yeah. yes I mean, it's very well choreographed it's almost yeah. like
1: if you look at some of the martial arts like a f- certain form of movement and dance
0: it is yeah and there were sort of wonderful storylines people rescuing people and it was just fun and yeah. it was just a wonderful antidote to having concentrated very, very hard. I love that. And finally, Joanna,
1: who have you nominated as your person of clout for us today?
0: Well, I don't know if he was of great clout outside, but he was our interpreter and guide, the first person who took us around China. And he was called Mr. Han. I'm very sorry. I don't even know what his first name was. And he was just Wonderful. He again made it very easy for us, but I think it was as interesting for him as it was for us because he was telling us about China and we were telling him about the world outside. And at that time there was very little news from the outside world. So it was a sort of two-way thing and he was wonderful. He didn't lose any of us. I mean, that must have been quite difficult and he had to make quite certain that we didn't actually go anywhere. We weren't allowed to go or he wasn't allowed to take us. He was just a a very enjoyable person. And we were very, very fond of Mr. Han. And he was a perfect introduction to China. Because in those days, you didn't really meet people there. You really were segregated. I mean, you might be taken to a collective farm and you would be introduced to people and you used to go in and you would sit down in the sort of meeting room with cups of tea and everybody would make polite Conversation. They would tell us about different things that had happened or that they were doing, and everybody would be politely nodding and wondering how much of that was correct and not correct. Yes. And Mr. Han was always there, always charming, always smiling. So he was a perfect introduction to that's
1: excellent right?
0: for us. That's great. And before we
1: wrap up for today, one thing that perhaps we didn't touch on too much, which I would love for us to talk about before we close is your continued love for China. You had a great first foray into the culture, into the stories, a great first experience. How did that continue and how did you stay connected to China for you and kept the interest and the love?
0: Well, I was very fortunate, or I have been very fortunate. I have continuously gone back to China, mainly with my husband, either when he was putting exhibitions on in Australia and looking for works. I mean, the Chinese paintings, Chinese the Jinghua figures, which incidentally I saw as they were coming out of the earth, which was fascinating wow. in the beginning. And I used to go back with him then, and then also he used to lead groups of people to go around China to look at Buddhist sites as well, because that was his particular speciality. And I always went with him. So, And I have a, a huge affection for China. I enjoy it very much. I enjoy the Chinese people. I enjoy the connections. I love being there. And I find it fascinating. And also, I'm full of admiration for what they have achieved and what's been yeah. achieved and what continues to be achieved there.
1: Now you are on the board of the Museum of Chinese in Australia. Yes. How do you see some of the experiences that you've had in China, and broader Asia, working with the Chinese people, looking at Chinese art, researching on museums? How has that helped you doing what you're doing now or helped? build the community here?
0: I was asked to join the board and I was very happy to do so because the museum is really for Chinese in Australia and there's a I think it's 1.3 million Chinese living in Australia and they've actually been living here since I think it's 1819. Yes. Uh, And they have played an enormously important part in the development of Australia. They are And they contributed. They are part of Australia just as much as I'm obviously from an English background. And I think that that's often overlooked. And I think it's incredibly important that not only for Chinese Australians to have that acknowledged, but I think it's really important for non-Chinese Australians to actually realise what they've contributed. And I think it's particularly important that for both for China and for Australia, that this is observed and respected and acknowledged.
1: I 100% agree and I think that's a great place to end. At Clout Asia, we tell the stories of Australians and their journey in leveraging their Asian capability in building clout and making a unique impact in their community. And Joanna, despite not reading many books by Chinese authors, nor your claim to not speak the language well. I definitely think you are one individual who has made a significant contribution, both previously and continuing to do so. It's great to hear your story. Thank you for sharing.
0: Well, thank you very much, Lucy. I have always loved my visits to China and hopefully will continue to do so. <laughs>
1: don't forget, you can subscribe to Clout Asia on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram and LinkedIn as Clout Asia. Thank you for listening. See you next time.